Uh, good morning, Chapel family. Good to be here with you. I'm going to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 3. And we are just in a short two-week series on what faithful preaching looks like. And it's important for us to understand what faithful preaching looks like for at least a couple of reasons. Um, One of those reasons is because you need to have discernment when you're listening to preaching. Maybe the chapel down the line will get a new pastor, teaching pastor, and you, you need to have this, or maybe you'll move away to another church, get a job change, and you need to have discernment when you're listening to someone who is preaching. For example, if, 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 if you hear a lot of positivity, a lot of lightness in the preaching, nothing unbiblical, but still everything's light, everything's positive, and there's no conviction of sin, there needs to be a discernment alarm that goes off. Or for example, if the preacher is just preaching a lot of moralistic sermons and Daniel was faithful and you should be faithful and, and look at Abraham, he left his family and you should you know, be faithful to God's call and, and all of it's biblical and all of it's good, but it lacks Christ and it lacks the gospel and it's all you should then there should be a discernment alarm that goes off in your head that says, where's the gospel? Where's Christ in all of this? So, so learning what faithful preaching looks like from Peter in Acts 3 is very important. But there's another reason. It's because you yourself are called to proclaim the gospel. That's another reason it's important to know what faithful preaching is, what it looks like. It's because you yourself are called to proclaim the gospel. It doesn't just happen from a pulpit. It happens at the office. It happens at a coffee shop. It happens in the living room with your family. We are constantly proclaiming the gospel. It doesn't just have to be a presentation. Proclaiming the gospel can be within a discussion. It can be online, proclaiming the gospel in various avenues there. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Our greatest problem is that we listen to ourselves rather than preach to ourselves. And there's another reason it's important to learn how to preach faithfully. It's because not only are you preaching the gospel to others, you're preaching it to yourself and should be preaching it to yourself on a regular basis. And you need to learn how to be a good preacher to yourself. So it's very important that we learn this. And last week we learned five features of faithful preaching and the first one was that faithful preaching uh, emphasizes people's spiritual needs, the forgiveness of their sins. It's not that Christians in the church ignore physical needs out there. No, we are to do good to all men, the scripture calls us to do, but the emphasis of our preaching is, and the goal is the spiritual need of the person, as Peter focused on that in his sermon. And then secondly, we noticed that Peter lowered himself, right? He he healed the man and everyone was staring at Peter with amazement and he just said, why are you looking at me as if by my power or by my piety this man was raised? He deflected the attention away from himself and then thirdly, he exalted Christ. He deflected attention away from himself and he exalted Christ. Of course, the apostle Paul said, we preach Christ. That's what we preach. He is the subject of our sermons. And if a sermon doesn't contain Christ, 
it's really a worthless sermon. Or if the subject doesn't somehow connect Christ to that, it's a worthless sermon because we are called to preach Christ. Paul said in Colossians, we proclaim him. Him. In Corinthians, we preach Christ. Peter in Acts 2, he preached about Christ. Peter in Acts 3, he preached about Christ. We exalt Christ. And then fourthly, as I mentioned earlier, conviction of sin. Acts chapter 2 says that after Peter preached, it says that they were cut to the heart because they had become convinced that they had wickedly crucified the Messiah. They were convicted of their sin. And so whether you are proclaiming the gospel at the office or at your home or wherever it is, the goal is we must convict of sin because if people don't see their sin, they're not going to see their need for a savior. And then finally, faithful preaching focuses on faith and faith alone. We emphasize that we are saved by faith, by trusting in Christ and entrusting in him alone, not our own selves, not our own righteousness, but faith alone. And then Peter also adds, just to make sure, he says, remember though that this faith is through Jesus. In other words, the faith that you have that led to your salvation, it came through Jesus. It was a gift to you, lest we pride ourselves in our own belief, in our own, in our own faith, in our own repentance. No, 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 it was a gift that came through Jesus, Peter points out. And that leads us to the next feature, first one for this morning, and that's love. Peter preached with love to his audience. He preached with affection to them, and we see that just in one verse, the verse 17. Look at, look at what he says. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Now, brothers, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Peter is now transitioning from guilt to gospel. He's transitioning from conviction to comfort here. He calls them brothers. You know, he doesn't say, you enemies of the cross. <laughs> no, they were enemies of the cross. He knew they were enemies of the cross, but he calls them affectionately brothers. You know, you hear pastors sometimes say, oh, loved ones, remember this or whatever. There has to be affection. There has to be a love. And then the second way I think that we see Peter's love in this verse is because of the demonstration of his mercy and his gentleness towards them. And I believe that he shows mercy and gentleness towards his audience by saying that, hey, I know that you acted in ignorance. I know that you didn't really know what you were doing. If you truly understood what you were doing, you wouldn't have done it. Isn't that what Jesus said on the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's a couple things about ignorance that we need to understand though. First of all, ignorance does not equal innocence, right? Just because you're ignorant of something doesn't mean you're innocent. Toddlers are ignorant of most everything in the world. They are not innocent. I got more laughs at that because this is the 1040 hour. I think there might be some younger parents here. They, they know. Toddlers, you don't have to teach them how to be selfish. They're just that way. They're ignorant, but they're not innocent. So Peter isn't saying, hey, I know that you guys are innocent. 
But secondly, we need to understand the difference between intentional ignorance and unintentional ignorance. There is a difference between the two. Intentional ignorance is when God has given you full light of something, full revelation. God has given you ample evidence. You know, you've come to church and you've heard various truths over and over again, and then your family members, they, they try to get you to see those same truths. And then you go to work and there's this guy, and he keeps, he's the thorn in your flesh. He keeps trying to remind you of this truth. And God has given you ample evidence, and it's full light, and yet you don't wanna hear it, and so you look away from it. It's like me with the scale. I know what's probably true, but I don't, want, I don't want to see it, so I stay away from it. True story. I stay away from it. I don't want to feel that conviction. That's willful, and Peter talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 2, about people who don't believe that the world is going to be judged by God one day. He says this, they deliberately overlook the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and that by means of these, the world that then existed was diluged with water and perished. He's talking about the flood. And what Peter is saying is, and it was common knowledge in biblical times, everyone knew that there was a flood that destroyed the earth. That's why every civilization has a record of the flood. Now, that record changes, the story changes in some ways, and some of the stories are really weird, but they all have a record of a flood because they know that it happened. And Peter's saying, why in the world would you think that God would not destroy the earth and judge the earth again one day? He did it before. He did it with water in the past, and he's gonna do it with fire in the future, he says in the second chapter. But some people don't wanna hear it, they don't wanna know about it, so they don't seek evidence about it. But then there's unintentional ignorance, unintentional ignorance. And this is when you genuinely think that you're doing the right thing even though you're doing the wrong thing. I don't know if you know this, but back in 1898, Bayer Company, they made a cough syrup made of heroin. And uh, it made people feel good. Um, but they started to realize that it was very addictive. And so in 1912, they had to stop production of it. And then in 1924, the American government banned it. But you can still see pictures of, of advertisement to this day, heroin cough syrup, you're gonna love it. Uh, they were really trying to help people, but they were ignorant about what this substance could really do. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, I, I was a blasphemer, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, right? I was persecuting the church. I, was, I blasphemed Jesus Christ, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I thought I was doing the right thing. I had a zeal for God. And I thought this new sect was against the truth. <laughs> but my zeal was without knowledge, he says. And he acted ignorantly. And Peter here says that same thing to this crowd. He's like, brothers, I know that you acted ignorantly. 
He demonstrates a love for them and affection for them, and so should we in our preaching. The second feature of faithful preaching is prophecy. Prophecy. Now this is something that is lost on today's church. Uh, we, 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 a lot of churches you know, just have a hunger for pragmatic issues like marriage and finances, and so you see a lot of sermons based on those topics. It's not wrong to, to teach on those topics, but they're just flooded in the church today, and the whole idea of learning about prophecy seems foreign to many churches today, but it really was the central content of the biblical authors, of the apostles, of Jesus. And in fact, in fact, prophecy, listen to this, was the primary way in which the apostles evangelized. They used prophecy to evangelize. Listen to Acts 17. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them, the Jews, in a synagogue, He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving, explaining and proving from the text that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Paul went back to the Old Testament and he said, look, look, this Jesus of Nazareth that you put to death, that that the Jews put to death, he was the fulfillment of these prophecies. That's how they evangelized. Matthew's gospel, the same thing. Matthew's gospel opens up with one, two, three, four prophecies that he said are fulfilled. Jesus, this is the primary way that Jesus convinced people that he was who he said that he was. It was through prophecy. He raises from the dead, And there are still people who don't believe. I don't know if you know that, but in uh, Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus is on the mount, he's about ready to ascend, it says, but some still doubted. (laughs) What? He was put to death, and now he's alive, and you're still doubting? So how did he get people to believe? Luke 24, he went and showed them from the scriptures how he was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and their hearts burned within them, and their eyes were open. And so you have this parable in Luke 16 of this guy suffering in Hades. He's suffering really bad, and he says to Abraham, who you can see him somehow, and he says, Abraham, will you send Lazarus, this other guy, will you send him from heaven, and will you send him to warn my relatives so that my relatives will repent? Because if they see that someone comes back from the dead, surely they will repent. And what does Abraham say? If they're not willing to listen to the prophets, they will not believe if someone raises from the dead. In other words, Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in Jesus Christ and many other prophecies is more of a powerful testimony, listen, than a miracle. That is how important Old Testament prophecy is, and we can use it, we can do this. You say, oh, that was for the apostles. No, we can do this. You can say, hey, do you know that Genesis chapter three, you know, the world breaks down because of sin, and that's why there's all this suffering because of sin, and, but guess what? God promised to send a savior, and, and he said in Genesis 3.15 that that savior was, it's not gonna be God riding down on a chariot, you know, it's gonna be a guy who's born of a woman. And then it also says that that, that figure, that man born of a woman will suffer. But it also says that after he suffers, he will crush the head of the serpent. 
he'll do away with all evil. And, and did you know that in Daniel chapter nine, it actually prophesies like the exact day that Jesus is going to arrive in Jerusalem? The exact date it prophesies. And, and no, no scholar, whether he's Christian or non-Christian, would argue the fact that the book of Daniel was written hundreds of years before the time of Christ, and yet you have a prophecy here that, that describes this figure, this servant, this person who comes, and he comes to Israel, and he's a righteous one, and yet he's an anointed one who is cut off, which in Jewish language means he's killed. And that's exactly what we have here in Jesus. You can explain to your friend, you have a man who was predicted to suffer and die and be cut off and be rejected by his own people. And Jesus was rejected by his own people, you see. And there was a forerunner, John the Baptist, and that was prophesied. And it prophesies where this Messiah is going to come from. He's going to come from Bethlehem, or is he going to come from Nazareth, or is he going to come from Egypt? Well, the Bible explains that. He was born in Bethlehem because his dad originally lived there, needed to go there to, for the census. And then Herod started persecuting and killing little babies, and so they had to flee to Egypt. And, and then after a while, they came out of Egypt and they lived in Nazareth, this little podunk town, which is exactly where you'd go in order to try to be safe. It's a small little town out of the way. See, that's the story of Jesus, and that's how he fulfills Old Testament prophecy. The Old Testament in Psalm 22 and in Zechariah 12 says that the Messiah will be pierced. Psalm 22 says that his hands and feet will be pierced. That was before crucifixion was ever invented. Isaiah 53 describes that his death was not a tragedy. He died for us to atone for our sins. And then it goes on to say that he will see the light of life which must mean that he will rise again. So he dies, but the implication is that he'll rise again. And so you can do this with your friends, with your family members, at a coffee shop, at the office, wherever you just, you can sit down and say, look at this. If, if, if the Bible isn't from God, how is it able to predict all of these things? You know, and this is just a foretaste. There are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that if you study and learn, you can show people. Only God knows the future. And so the Bible must be from him. Prophecy is a part of faithful preaching. Thirdly, human responsibility. And I put in parentheses, repentance. So what did the Old Testament prophets, what was the content, what was their main message to people? Repent. And then John the Baptist came along, and what was his main message to people? repent. And then Jesus came along and surely he had a radically new Jesus message. <laughs> mm, no. Matthew 14, 17, 4, 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven. Well, surely the, the, the apostles had a different message. No. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, look at what Peter says. What's he say? Repent. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins might be blotted out. Repentance, of course, metanoia in the Greek, meta, to change your mind, to change your beliefs. That's what repentance means. Stop believing this way, start believing that way. Let me give you an illustration of, of, of repentance. We all know that 
racism is an issue in our country. It's, a, it's an issue everywhere in the world. It was an issue with the Jews and the Gentiles. And why do certain people who are like, you know, we're all racist to a certain degree, whether that's a little bit or, or a lot, that's why the Bible talks about the healing of Jew and Gentile. And, but some people are like capital R racist. And so why do they do what they do? Why do they mistreat other races? Well, it's because of what they believe. They believe that they're superior and that this race over here is inferior. They don't believe that this race over here is made in the image of God. Or they believe that this race over here, this race is a threat to our country. And we need to keep this country pure, like Hitler and the Jews. And so you have one of two options, I can either subjugate them or I can extinguish them. Those are my, that's what I believe, those are my options. But they, there's all sorts of terrible things that they believe. The only way to change their behavior is to change their beliefs. The only way for them to change is to repent. It's to say, I no longer want to think that way. I no longer want to have that worldview. I no longer want to adopt that belief system as my own. I want it out. That's what repentance is. And God wants us to do that. He wants us to do that about him about the way we think about ourselves, about the way that we think about Christ, about the way that we think about the Bible. He wants us to stop looking at Christ as just this good man, this, this prophet, you know, just he, he wants us to stop looking at him as being aloof and uncaring and, and he's relational and he loves and he, he wants us to stop blaming him for all the problems in the world. That's not true. Repent of that. He wants to stop us thinking of ourselves as good people who can somehow earn our own righteousness and save ourselves when we can't which is why he had to send his son to die. And when we say, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't need this atonement, I don't need this atoning death, it's the biggest slap in the face to God who provided his one and only son for us to die. He wants us to change our beliefs. And when we are proclaiming the gospel, we need to be like Peter, need to be like Jesus, need to be like all the apostles, need to be like John the Baptist, need to be like the prophets, and emphasize repentance. In a loving, humble way, we call people to change their beliefs. Amen. Feature number four, positive and negative motivation. We want to try and motivate people through the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to try and motivate people to repent and, and do what I've been talking about this morning, right? And, and changing your beliefs. We wanna motivate them. Well, how do we do that? Well, through positive motivation and also through negative motivation. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, first of all, look at how, what Peter does. He motivates positively. Look at verse 19. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointing for you, Jesus. What's he want? What's his goal? His goal is for them to repent and he motivates them by saying that times, that times of refreshing may come from his presence and your sins will be blotted out and the Christ will return and all of the, he'll establish his kingdom and all these great things will happen. We had the privilege of being able to vacation in Florida in October. 
And uh, we just had this day that was just utterly perfect. Uh, we went to Tampa Bay uh, at Clearwater Beach, and we got on this, like, this speedboat thing, and um, all these dolphins were jumping with, as the speedboat was going, and you could almost literally reach out and touch them. And then we went to the beach, and we got these, these seats with these coverings and this clear white sand, and we go into the ocean, and we're jumping into the waves and pounding the waves, and our family's having a great time. And then we go back to our seats and enjoy some snacks and drink, and then we go back to the ocean, and we're like all day in the sun having fun, enjoying our, our time there. And then we get back to our house, and we all shower and clean up, and I'm sitting there with the sun still on my face on a couch just saying, thank you, Lord, for this day. It was so refreshing. And what Peter is saying is, God can do that for you, for your soul. He can blot out all your sins. The record can be struck of all of your sins, and you no longer have to bear the, the weight of your guilt and your soul can be refreshed if you would but repent. He's trying to motivate them in a positive way. And then he does it again in verses 25 and 26. Look at what he says. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter's saying, listen, God, God wants to bless you. That was his original goal in, in, in calling Abraham and, and, and the Abrahamic covenant. It was to bless you and to ultimately bless the whole earth. And then he says he wants to bless you by turning you from your wickedness. God's goal is to bless you. What did Jesus say? I say these things that your joy may be full. The heart of God is to bless. He says, no, 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 God wants to take my fun away. No, he wants to take your pain away. And when he, when he wants to take your wickedness and your sin away, that's not him wanting to take your fun away, it's him wanting to take your pain away. Because sin only leads to pain, and it leads to you not bringing him glory. And so Peter motivates them in a positive way. He'll refresh your soul. He wants to bless you. But he also motivates them in a negative way. I would call this warning, warning. Look at verse 22. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, he's talking about Christ, like me, from your brothers, right? There's a prophecy that Jesus will come from the Jews. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, meaning Jesus, shall be destroyed from the people. This is oftentimes lost on the church as well. Pastors are oftentimes afraid that if you speak like this, if you talk like this, it will clear the pews. Um, no doubt, sometimes it does. Uh, but here's the thing. The word preacher in the Greek is euangelion, euangelion. And euangelion was not a, just a Christian word. It was actually used in society for a messenger. 
a messenger usually of a, a, a royal person of some, some kind, maybe a mayor or a governor or a king, and the king would give the euangelion a message. And it was his job to take the king's message and just simply say it to the townspeople, to communicate it to the people. And he wasn't to add to it his own opinions, and he wasn't to read it and be like, oh, I don't like this part from the king. I think I'll take that out. He wasn't to do that. He was to simply convey the message as the king wanted it to be conveyed. That's the job of a preacher. My job, your job, in the pulpit, at the coffee shop, in the living room, wherever it is, we convey the message just as it is. And part of that means warning people. Paul said in Colossians 1, we proclaim him Warning everyone, warning them. Second Thessalonians, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother, someone strained from the truth. People, say, people get upset, like, God is so angry in the Bible and he makes all these threats and, and if, you, if you go over here and if you do this or you don't do that, then, then I'm gonna wipe you from the face. And that's, how is that loving? Oh, it's very loving. It's loving for the same reason that I warn my children to stay away from the street, right? That's the classic illustration that's always used. And if you go near the street, I will punish you because I love you so much that I'm gonna use this pain to communicate to you to stay away from that because that is gonna lead to death. And I would be evil in an unloving parent if I was just like, Oh, my child is near the street and there are semi-trucks going by at 70 miles per hour. Eh, I don't want to offend them. We are called to warn, tell our children straight up, if you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, you will die in your sins. John chapter eight. We warn Fifth and final feature of faithful preaching is divine sovereignty. Divine sovereignty. Look at verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. What is Peter doing here? He is trying to motivate the Jews to repent and embrace Jesus by reminding them of the privileges that they have received from God. You had a covenant that was given to you, and in addition to that, God came to you first. Here's a verse from Scripture that you might have memorized. You probably know it well, but there's a part of it that might shock you. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We've all heard that before, right? Okay, so the verse continues. To the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. 
You ever wonder why that is? Why not the Russians first? Why not Europeans or Asians or Africans? How come they didn't get all these divine privileges? Think of these, uh, Romans chapter nine, verse four and five. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, right? The example of having godly men in your past, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. They had it all, all these privileges given to the Jewish people, and in addition to that, Christ came to them first. And he maintained his ministry almost the whole time in Israel. Immense privileges. And you say, is that fair? Why didn't God give all the same privileges to all the nations? And isn't there a way for, for God to have come to all the nations at the same time? How is this fair? Romans nine fifteen. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He's the king. This isn't a democracy. He's the king and he's sovereign and he chooses what he wills. God did not have a conversation with you about whether or not you wanted to be born, right? Do you remember that conversation? I don't. Hey, would you like to be born? No, he just created you. And in the same way that he didn't have a conversation with you or consult you about whether you would be born, he did not consult you about whether you would be reborn. Romans 9, 16. So then it depends not, what? What's it? Salvation. It depends not on human decision or good works, but on God who has mercy. John 1.13 says that believers were, quote, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the decision of man, but of God. Last time I preached this a while back, someone went onto social media and wrote on our social media account, I made a decision. <laughs> In one sense, I agree with that. Spirited fellow, he did make a decision, but it was only because God enabled him to make that decision that he made it. You see, none of us will listen to Christ unless we have new ears. And none of us will see the beauty of Christ unless we have new eyes. And none of us will love Christ unless we're given a new heart. None of us will embrace Christ unless we're given new arms. And so the Bible teaches that a person must be born again. He or she must be recreated. And as a result of being recreated and born again, then you go, oh, he is the way, the truth, and the life. 
I see it now, and I do repent, and I trust in him. But it's because of what he did first, not because of what we did first. And I wanna end, I wanna end this message by really making sure I drive this point home. Turning your Bibles to 1 John. You're like, we got more? We got just a little bit more. Just a little bit more, and then I promise we'll be done after I make my point here. Chapter two, 1 John chapter two. Did our belief and repentance lead to us being born again? Or did being born again lead to our belief and repentance? You say, why is this important? It's important because if you think that you are the reason for your salvation, you will be lost in your pride. And you will not learn to love him as you could fully love him to see his mercy upon you. God didn't say, oh, this person chose me. What an amazing person for choosing me. Now I'm gonna set my love on him. No, he said, I'm gonna set my love on this person and recreate them and then they're gonna choose me. And I wanna prove this from 1 John chapter two. Look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That's talking about regeneration. It's talking about being born again, uh, recreated. Has, and I see that phrase, has been born. That is in the perfect tense in the Greek. So what, what the heck does that mean? It just, it just denotes cause, cause. And so what John is saying here is, is that, do you wanna know that if you're righteous and if you practice righteousness, right, that's what we do as Christians. We're not perfect, but we practice righteousness, right? Do you know, wanna know why you do that, John says? It's because you have been born again. And so, for example, if I eat a cupcake, which I happen to love cupcakes, and I smile, it's because that cupcake has been made of sugar. (laughs) And I love sugar. And the effect is me smiling. And I eat the cupcake and my insulin spikes because it has been made of sugar. Being made of sugar is the cause. Me smiling and my insulin spiking is the effect. That's what we mean by the perfect tense. It's a cause. Now turn to chapter three. We get another example of this. Verse nine. Chapter three, verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now this is talking, talking about the practice of sinning. This is talking about diving headlong into sin, not caring that you're doing it and living your lifestyle like that. And, 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 and John is saying that Christians don't live that way. Christians aren't perfect, but, but they experience conviction and, and they begin to grow out of that. And he's saying, why is it that you don't make a practice of sinning? What? Because you have been born again. 
You've been given a new heart, new eyes, new ears, and because of that, you don't make a practice of sinning because you've been born again, which is the cause. Okay, now turn to chapter four, verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves, what's it say? Has been born of God. Why is it that you think that you're able to love? Why do we love one another? Why do we take care of each other? And this church loves. I have been the beneficiary of that so many times. Why is it that we do that? John says it's because we have been born again. Because we've been recreated and been made into a new person, now we are able to love. Because we've been given a new heart, a new eyes, to see how Christ loved us. And now that we see how Christ loves us, now we're able to love others. This is what John says. One more, chapter five, verse four. Same phrase. Chapter five, verse four. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Why do Christians overcome the world, not allow the world to deceive them and draw them into their system? Why is it that that happens? It's because you have been born of God. You say, Josh, what is your point? Look at verse one of chapter five. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ What's it say? Has been born of God. Why do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Because you've been born, because he recreated you. He gave you a new heart, new eyes, new ears. It was his act that led to you repenting. It was not your act that led to salvation. It first was his. We love, John says, because what? He first loved us. It's not that we, like, oh, I love Christ now. I believe in him, I repent of my sins, and I love him now, and then God goes, okay, now I will love you. Uh Uh-uh. He loved us, and because he loved us, we love him. He first loved. Hold on to this truth of divine sovereignty, church. No matter what, embrace it. It's meant for your joy. It's meant for our humility. It's like a, it's like a, it's like I hate healthy food, you know. And I, it's spinach. And I can't explain every reason and every good thing that spinach does for me, but I eat it like almost every day because these health nuts are just at me. And so I eat it to try to stay healthy. I don't know all of the good that it does for me. I can't explain it. And it's the same way with embracing divine sovereignty. It's, it's like taking a vitamin. It's like eating healthy. It just does so many good things for your spiritual benefit that you don't even realize. So embrace it. You say, how, how can it be that there are some people in the church who absolutely despise this doctrine? And I've met many of them. 
And how can it be at the same time that there are other people in the church who absolutely love this doctrine and say it's the greatest thing, it's blessed them beyond what they can imagine? How can you have these two polar opposites? For the same reason that some people hate Jesus Christ, but other people, he is the biggest blessing of their life. It's a stumbling block, an offense to some, but to others it's an enormous blessing. Let it be a blessing to you. Faithful preaching is loving, emphasizes prophecy, motivates through positive and negative. It focuses on human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us when we hated you. Thank you for choosing us when we had no intention whatsoever to choose you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you said you did not choose me, but I chose you. Thank you for saving us when we wanted nothing to do with you. This world fell into sin and we adopted, a, a, we, we had a sinful nature. And all men are, are, are insolent haters of God ever since then. Yet you reached down, you came down to save us out of our deception, out of our ignorance. And now you've set us free. You have set us free. You've taken the record of our sin. You have put it away. You have removed the weight of our guilt. And you have blessed us and you have refreshed us with your, with your presence. And so because of that, we want to be faithful proclaimers of your good news. And so we ask for the grace that you would do that. Use us for your glory. Amen. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.